A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. To the memory of the Countess. What is a woman's weak, delicate form but a flower that droops beneath every storm, that shrinks as the chilly breeze wanders by, And if tempests arise, must fade and die. Oh, let her be placed on a fairy throne, to be flattered and worshipped and gazed upon. She never was destined to view the strife, the carnage, the toil of this earthly life, but to smile and charm in the summer hours, basking in sunshine like other sweet flowers. Oh, never should sorrow its dim form rear, to stain that cheek with its scalding tear. For the radiant light of those sunny eyes can only beam underneath cloudless skies. And her fairy footsteps may only fall in a bower of love or the banquet hall. Such woman was ever and still must be. No, Poland, ain't a woman can change for thee. She doth not shrink from the scathing storm, though fragile and weak be her lovely form. She doth not desert in the hour of need her country, her friends, but with them will bleed. As a guardian spirit will hover around where artillery thunders and trumpets sound. And oh, if the lion will turn and flee from a maid in the pride of her purity, what demon could harm ain't a single hair of the angel forms that minister there? Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.18, Amelia Platter, Poland is not yet lost. Last time, we had our final episode on Sacagawea, the American Indian folk heroine whose memory has meant so much to so many. Today, we travel two decades forward and around 5,000 miles east to tell the story of one of Eastern Europe's most famous heroines. If you've ever studied modern European history you all know that Poland has a habit of showing up at the weirdest times. It is intrinsic to the histories of Russia, Germany and even France. Her story is not always a pleasant one. It has spent centuries in the shadow of, or under the thumb of, more powerful neighbours, and only recently regained its independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. Amelia's is an amazing story, 
but frustratingly there is very little of it in the English language. Indeed, I'm depending for her series on a translated biography of her that is 150 years old. I would strongly suggest any historian with a working knowledge of Polish take the story on and do something in English, because she is crying out for a modern take. So because of this paucity of sources, this will be a quick whistle-stop story of a woman who deserves so much more, but I am really excited to be sharing it with you nonetheless. Now, in the last episode, I promised you this episode would actually be an interview, but it turns out I should never make scheduling comments without first consulting my diary. That episode will actually be coming out in May. I can, though, give you a few more details of it to whet your appetites. I will be speaking to Elodie Harper on her new book, The Wolf Den, an engrossing story of survival and empowerment set in the Lupinar in ancient Pompeii. I love having people on the podcast to talk about their work, and I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. And finally, before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon backers who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Poland is not yet lost, so long as we still live. What the foreign power has seized from us, we shall recapture with the sabre. This is the first verse from the modern Polish national anthem, written originally in 1797. This was a rallying cry, a call to arms for a people living under the thumbs of a foreign power, and has influenced the national anthems of many other Eastern European countries. Our story begins in the year the anthem was written, when three great European powers swallowed what was left of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Okay, so what was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? This was a dual monarchy, dating back to the 16th century, with Poland itself dating back to around 966. This makes it a kingdom with similar age to both France and England, and is significantly older than the likes of Spain, and much, much older than the three kingdoms that would destroy it, Austria, Russia, and Prussia. At its height, Poland and Lithuania had been one of the most powerful countries in Europe, stretching around 400,000 square miles and covering modern nations such as Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, most of Ukraine and Estonia, and a little bit of Russia as well. It was a rather odd country, run under the notion of golden liberty, with the governing principle being that the king reigns, but he does not govern. It was in some ways a precursor to a more modern constitutional monarchy, but the system had the rather unfortunate side effect of producing rather ineffectual government, as power was held mostly by a noble class that had no interest in the modernisation or reforms undertaken by its neighbours throughout the modern period. But, in 1764... A new king sought to change all of that. He was King Stanislaus II Augustus, 
a former lover of Catherine the Great, and he was on a mission to build a more modern and powerful Commonwealth. He was so successful in this that Poland and Lithuania attracted the attention of her neighbours, Austria-Prussia, and most significantly, Russia. The abiding diplomatic principle in Europe at the time was an obsession with maintaining the balance of power, and for that to work in Eastern Europe, these three powers needed a weak Poland. The Commonwealth had been a de facto Russian puppet state for some time, and Catherine the Great had no intention of letting her former lover rebuild his nation into a major player. In 1772, the three nations invaded and split up around 82,000 square miles of Polish-Lithuanian territory between them. This was the first partition of Poland, and was a disaster for the Commonwealth, which had been unable to defend its territory. However, worse was to come. Two decades later, in 1793, while they should have been focusing their attention on the rabid guillotining going on in France, Prussia and Russia seized half of all remaining Polish land. Poles were coerced into all of this, hoping that this would be the end. But it wasn't. Two years later, after a failed rebellion, the three powers united again in the third partition. After that, Poland was wiped from the map. Now, nationalistic inclined Poles didn't take the theft of their country lying down, and many of them fought on the side of France in the Napoleonic Wars, hoping that they would be rewarded once Bonaparte achieved victory. Sadly, when Napoleon was Waterlooed, the victorious powers kept their bits of Poland. Now, Russia, which had taken the largest bits of Poland in the partitions, did two things to assuage the Poles. The first was to re-establish the crown of Poland, which the Russian Tsar held, and the second was to promulgate a constitution, which was actually arguably the most liberal in Europe at the time. However, it will surprise none of you to hear that the constitution only ever existed on paper. In the words of historian Dominik szczesny Konstanetsky, there was a constitution on the table, but a lash under it. Provisions guarding Polish freedoms were amended, suspended, or just flat-out ignored, and Tsar Alexander I never even bothered to have himself crowned as King of Poland, sending his brother Constantine to rule in his stead as governor. And he would stay in his post after the accession of his other brother, Nicholas I the Tsar, in 1825. Constantine passed laws limiting press freedoms, suspending the Polish parliament, and formed a secret police force, all to smother and crack down on dissent. The new Tsar also tried to impose Russian Orthodox Christianity on the mostly Catholic Poles. Okay, so let's jump forward to 1830, which was one of the most momentous revolutionary years in pre-war Europe. In this year, ironically partly thanks to Russian intervention, the Greeks won their independence from the Ottoman Turks. In France, the authoritarian King Charles X was overthrown by his more liberal cousin, Louis-Philippe, forming the July monarchy. And this, in turn, inspired the Belgian nationalists to rise up against their king, William I of the Netherlands, and win their independence. Indeed, 1830 was a far more successful revolutionary year than the more famous 1848, which was largely a catalogue of failure. This activity all inspired Polish nationalists to believe that they could rise up against their Russian oppressors. There were broadly two revolutionary cells, 
one civil and the other military. The civil was primarily made up of students and intellectuals with liberal noble sympathisers, while junior officers dominated the military. The spark for the revolt came when news broke that the Tsar was planning on sending Polish troops to suppress revolutions in France and Belgium. On the 9th of the 29th of November 1830, Lieutenant Piotr Wisnitsky led a group of his comrades from their barracks and led an attack on the Belweda Palace in Warsaw, the official residence of Grand Duke Constantine. The governor managed to escape, disguised as a woman, but the rebels quickly moved on to capture the city arsenal and fanned out throughout the city, calling the people to arms. They didn't have much luck with the posh people, but working-class Poles rose up and were armed by the rebels and attacked the city garrison with such numbers that they were forced to withdraw. By the time the sun rose, the insurrectionists were in control. Warsaw was free. The Polish parliament, called the Administrative Council, removed loyalist ministers and voted to depose the Tsar as King of Poland. Some hoped that war with Russia could be avoided, but this was a pipe dream. If Poland wanted its freedom, it would have to fight for it. Tsar Nicholas deployed an army of around 200,000 men, crossing the border into Poland on the 4th of February 1831. After a few skirmishes and small battles, the two sides engaged fully outside of Warsaw on the 25th of February. The Poles were outnumbered and outgunned, and both sides suffered heavy casualties in a brutal stalemate. However, when dusk fell, the Poles were in possession of the field. Hopes of a quick Russian steamroller victory were dashed. While the two main armies clashed around the capital, the rest of Poland saw sporadic fighting and guerrilla tactics utilised to bleed away the Russian forces. The Poles also sought to raise other groups in rebellion, the most significant of which for our story were the Lithuanians. It all began in Lithuania with a peasant uprising in protest at Russian efforts to conscript them into their army to fight the Poles. This was quickly crushed, but soon the whole country was up in arms, joining their neighbours in the fight against the common oppressor. The country was full of Russian garrisons, and martial law was imposed in a vain attempt to keep order, but they didn't manage it. Polish victories depleted the Russian occupation force in Lithuania, allowing rebels the chance to rise up and seize control of the countryside. By the spring of 1831, only the two major cities of Vilnius and Kaunas remained in Russian hands. This rebellion was not one movement, but a series of mini-uprisings led by local leaders, including one obscure countess in eastern Lithuania who was about to take up arms for her country. Amelia Platter was born in Vilnius on the 13th of November 1806 as the only child of a noble Polish-Lithuanian family. As a child, she would have seen Napoleon's monstrous invasion army march into Vilnius in June 1812 and occupy the city, an army that actually contained a significant number of Poles who had signed up in the hope that France would give them their independence, and many Lithuanians joined them. Sadly, most of these men would never return from Russia. 
We know nothing about Amelia's early childhood until 1815, the same year that Lithuania was incorporated into the Russian Kingdom of Poland, when her parents divorced. She moved, with her mother Anna, back to her ancestral home in Livonia, modern-day Latvia. They were taken in by a wealthy distant relation called Madame Freeberg, who owned several manors and around 15,000 serfs. Madame Freeberg quickly took a shine to the precocious kind girl and ensured that she gained a comprehensive education, but with a major emphasis on Polish history and culture. Her guardians and tutors noticed that she was not a normal girl. She showed no interest in dolls, dresses and dances. Instead, she loved to ride, shoot and read about Polish military heroes. Her particular favourites were Thaddeus Kosciuszko, who fought with rebel scum in the American Revolutionary War, and then in a vain attempt to save his country from partition, and Józef Poniatowski, a Pole who became one of Napoleon's best marshals and died heroically at the Battle of Leipzig. She was also fascinated by Joan of Arc, who needs no introduction to you, of course, and of Lascarina Bubalina, a Greek female admiral and heroine of their War of Independence in 1821. Amelia said of her, quote, Men in the course of their duty can but challenge death, but Bellina goes beyond. She braves public opinion besides. While we can't be sure, it's likely Amelia also admired some of Poland's great military female heroes, such as Queen Hedwig, who converted her country to Catholicism and saved it from Hungarian domination. These men and women were her idols and her patriotic education and martial skills gave her the confidence and the surety that she would do her duty when her time came. She was further radicalised in 1823, when a close relative, Michael Platter, was forcibly conscripted into the Russian army after writing a pro-Polish slogan on the blackboard at school. Despite her radical pro-Polish views, her looks and winning charms attracted the interest of the local garrison commander, who took a shine to her teenage Amelia. I have been able to find his name, but he is described as being, quote, very clever in his profession, but extremely awkward in his manners, and so severe a disciplinarian that he would have put himself under arrest had he accidentally discovered that he had presented himself with a button more or less on his coat than the rules and regulations prescribed. So, not exactly a catch. He made several attempts to propose, but each time he found himself tongue-tied, until finally he managed to blurt out, quote, I come to ask your hand in marriage. Amelia immediately and curtly replied, quote, Sir, I refuse it. This is the conversation that followed. But think of my rank, Countess, and the favour which I enjoy with the Emperor. I am fully aware of the honour you condescend to bestow upon me by your choice, but, well, but, the thing is impossible. Impossible? Am I so unfortunate as to have incurred your aversion? I do not hate you personally. Is disproportion in our age is an objection? The husband should always be older than the wife. It is exactly what I think myself. Perhaps your heart is perfectly free. You can never find a better choice. I do not deny it. Then nothing is in the way. I am a daughter of Poland. Hashtag burn, I think you'll all agree. 
A slightly more successful suitor was a German captain in the Russian army, who ingratiated himself with Amelia by tutoring her in mathematics. Despite being a Russian officer, she was mightily tempted by him, but eventually he was transferred away and so nothing came of it. In her late teens, she embarked on a tour of Poland with her mother, visiting the great cities of Krakow and Warsaw. There she visited various shrines of Polish liberty, seeing art, architecture, statues and palaces that spoke of a bygone golden age. She viewed them with wonder and also disgust, as if she was visiting the graveyard of Polish freedom. One place that had a particular effect on her was the Warsaw suburb of Praga, where, in 1794, Russian troops had massacred 20,000 Poles during the Third Partition. This trip is seen as her final step on the road to radicalization. Before, her education in Polish and Lithuanian nationalism had largely been book-taught, but seeing these sights and breathing the same air where so many martyrs had breathed their last turned her into a full-blooded freedom fighter. Now, she merely awaited her call. The revolutionary year of 1830 started tragically for Amelia, with the death of her mother, Countess Anna. She had been sick for a while, and Amelia never left her bedside, taking it upon herself to be her carer. When Anna eventually passed away, Amelia handled all the funeral arrangements, and this all brought about a certain spiritual awakening that she had never before experienced. She was also inspired to try and get back in contact with her estranged father, with little luck. He went around his relatives trying to get a message to him, and it was while staying with an aunt that news of the 29th of November uprising reached her. Amelia was a well-respected local dignitary, and now, as a countess after her mother's death, she had a great deal of social standing. So she got on her horse and rode around her local area, taking the pulse of the peasantry and nobility alike, while preaching violent revolution. She made a uniform for herself, cut her hair short, and formed an armed band to accompany her. If this sounds very Joan of Arcian to you, then that was exactly Amelia's intention. Once she was confident that her people would rally to her banner when called, she set off for Vilnius to seek instructions from the revolution's leaders. But this, unfortunately, is where her naivety caught up with her. The military aspect of the November uprising was primarily led by old, crusty conservative men who had not seen much action since the Napoleonic War. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and fighting a war they had never wanted. So what do you think they said when a 24-year-old woman rode up and asked to be commissioned into the army? This was 1830. They told her to buzz off and stop wasting their time. Now, to a lesser woman, that might have been the end of it. She'd ride back with her tail between her legs and go back to her needlework. But this was Amelia Platter. Some dude tells her she wasn't allowed to die for her country. She was going to show him. She rode back home with the group of volunteers she had raised and scouted out for a Russian garrison that he'd catch by surprise. She picked out the military camp at Duneburg, an outpost where conscripted Poles forced to wear Russian uniforms received their training. In their ranks were two of her cousins, which added salt to the wound. Using her local contacts, she got a message into the camp, urging the soldiers to mutiny against their foreign officers and join the revolution. 
But for her plan to work, she needed more troops of her own. And so she transformed from revolutionary captain to recruiting sergeant. Dressed in full military uniform, she gave a speech on Sunday after Mass at the largest church in the area. She urged them to fight against Russian oppression, against the burdensome taxes and army conscription. Quote, It's time. It's time to go and aid our Polish brothers who are fighting for us upon the shores of the Vistula. We must break the chains which overwhelm us. We must be free. We must fight. God wills it. At these words, the last of which harking back to the crusading knights of the Middle Ages, the men of the village rushed home, returning with scythes, knives, anything they could find. The blacksmiths set to work, converting these farmyard tools into weapons, while Amelia distributed what guns and ammunition she had. The next day, she seized a post station and took their horses. So now she had foot soldiers and cavalry. She then marched on Duneburg, routing a Russian force that had sallied out to meet them in a surprise attack. However, once she reached the fortress, her troops were quickly dispersed under heavy cannon fire and forced to retreat. The failure of her attack can be put down to the fact that the conscript she had radicalised within the camp had recently been sent away, replaced by Russian nationals who had no interest in Amelia's crusade. This defeat did not overly dishearten Amelia, but it made her realise that she needed to join forces with a larger patriot army if she was to have an impact. As luck would have it, the revolutionary forces in Lithuania were finally getting their act together and appointed Count Charles Zaluski as their commander-in-chief. So Amelia marched her small army up to Vilnius to join up with Zaluski, and she was quickly overtaken by her own hype train, who reached the Lithuanian army first. They told of this brave, fearless Joan of Arc who was on her way, whose oratory had raised a great force to her banner. She was strong as an ox, courageous as a lion, and as physically impressive as Hercules himself. Therefore, when Amelia presented herself at camp, the men there were somewhat disappointed. She was a fairly normal-looking young woman. She wasn't quite what they were expecting. And that, coupled with the fact that she was a woman, meant that they too dismissed her. They questioned whether she could stand up to the rigours of campaigning, to living under constant fear of attack, sleeping in the open, and being exposed to common soldiers. They urged her to leave, or, if she was determined to stay, take up more womanly pursuits, such as nursing. Amelia listened coldly to this and replied, quote, I know that my health and arm are both weak, but the weapons I bear are merely for my own defence. These pistols will protect me from personal danger when attacked by an enemy. And if these fail me, this dagger, which you see, will not allow me to be taken alive. I am a woman, and as such cannot overcome the curiosity which impels me to assist you in your battles, and be an eyewitness of your courage, and, finally, to dress your noble wound on the spot and at the moment you receive them. As to these fatigues... Weak as I am, I know how to endure them. This direct response silenced her critics, and they permitted her to remain at the head of her own troops. 
you may notice there that she basically promised them that she wouldn't do any actual fighting. And there is quite a bit of historical debate about whether her position as captain was honorary or if she actually was in command of her troops. Unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that. The day after her arrival, the Lithuanians were surprised by a Russian army at Prastovoniai. Emilia is said to have been the first to grab her musket once the enemy had been sighted. But this seems somewhat unlikely given the fact that she was an officer. The Lithuanians fought well, but eventually were forced to retreat when they ran out of ammunition. This defeat panicked them, and they dispersed their army, focusing instead on guerrilla tactics. Emilia headed back to her own district with a detachment of chasseurs, finding the area up in flames. The Russians had taken advantage of the Lithuanians gathering all their forces into one spot to take retribution on the countryside, and every village Emilia passed carried signs of their brutality. On these marches, she met a kindred spirit, Maria Rosanovitz. She was from country gentry stock, and had taken the Mulan route of cutting off all her hair and disguising herself as a man to join the Revolutionary Army. Her disguise didn't fool anyone for long, but she was a capable fighter and quickly won the respect of the men. In Amelia, Maria found a safe haven, a fellow woman to whom they could share war stories and frustrations at the sexism they encountered. She offered herself to be Amelia's aide-de-camp, an offer she readily accepted, and from then on the two were inseparable right up to her death. For the next few weeks, the war entered a period of impasse. The Russians didn't have enough men to take the countryside, while the Lithuanians were dispersed. But the Lithuanians couldn't combine forces as the Russians would just defeat them and take their anger out on the fellow countrymen. There was also little news from Poland, which at that point paid little heed to what was going on over the border. And so the various little Lithuanian commands, including Amelia's, stuck to raiding and harrying, not letting the Russians settle and biding their time until the time was right to attack in numbers. In doing this, they were doing a great service to their fellow Poles, as they were tying down tens of thousands of Russian troops that would otherwise be in Poland, and the Lithuanians were very proud of their contribution to the war effort. In July 1831, the Poles finally began to take notice of what was going on in Lithuania and dispatched General Desideri Chlapowski with a Polish army with orders to join forces with the rebels and drive the Russians out of Lithuania. The Lithuanian high command was very suspicious of Chlapowski's motives. They worried that any troops they sent would be marched to Poland, never to be seen again, leaving Lithuania exposed. However, a group of officers, including Emilia and Maria, persuaded them that they were never going to win this war without Polish assistance. And so troops were sent to the border to muster a combined force. This was the meeting of long-lost brothers, of comrade-in-arms fighting a common enemy. It must have been a stirring sight. Emilia's fame was already spreading around Poland, indeed to all of Europe, helped by revolutionary propaganda, and so she was a figure of great interest, with men flocking to her campfire. However, the Polish commander was less than keen on her remaining with the army, and exhorted her to just go. She politely refused, telling him, quote, As long as Poland is not entirely free, my vocation is that of a soldier, 
and as I am espoused to the cause of my country, without any ambitious views, I will not abandon it at a moment when dangers are more threatening and battles more decisive. This combined army was later joined by another Polish force that marched on the capital of Vilnius but was quickly forced back. Amelia wasn't there, though. Her unit had been dispatched to Kaunas, Lithuania's second city, and at that point, the largest rebel stronghold. Unfortunately, the commander there was an idiot who failed to make adequate reparations, and so once the Russians arrived, it was a bloodbath. Emilia is said to have been in the thick of the action, with two-thirds of her regiment being killed or wounded in the fighting. The battlefield was a haze of smoke from muskets and cannons, with explosions breaking the monotony of the screams of the wounded. It was a horrific place to be, and yet Amelia stood firm, leading her men right to the end. Legend has it that Amelia fought until her sword literally dropped out of her hands, such as for her exhaustion. She seemed certain to fulfil her aim of dying for her country, before a colonel in the cavalry offered her his horse to facilitate her escape. She initially refused, but he insisted on his honour, and so she was one of the lucky few who managed to get away. Okay, so it's fair to say that the war in Lithuania wasn't exactly going well. Over in Poland, superficially, things were going much better. They were winning most of the battles, despite their numerical disadvantage, but they were suffering irreplaceable losses. A classic example of this is the Battle of Ostrolecha, which happened around the same time as the Battle of Kaunas. In it, 48,000 Poles faced off against 55,000 Russians, and while the Patriot Army held the field at the end of the day, they had suffered over 7,000 dead and many more wounded, even more than the enemy. These heavy losses meant that they could offer no more help to the Lithuanians, thoroughly demoralised, and looked to pick up an easy win against an isolated garrison at Schlawele. However, due to their incompetence, their attack was thrown back. This meant they needed reinforcements and resupply, and Amelia's regiment was called up to escort the baggage train. However, they ran into an ambush near Schwalani, suffering heavy casualties and losing most of the baggage. Amelia was mentioned in dispatches as having fought bravely, but it was clear to all that the jig was up. The remaining Lithuanian commanders held a council of war and decided they needed to retreat into Poland in three columns and join up with one of their armies. Amelia joined them, linking up with General Szlapowski's force. It was a miserable march. They had very little food or supplies, and the succession of defeats had crushed their morale. But, after a few days with no contact with the enemy, spirits were beginning to lift. Before one morning, they found themselves on the Prussian border. Now this, and there's no other way of saying this, was the wrong way. But the general had an explanation. He said that the war was over. They had no chance of success, and if they continued to fight, they would die. If they wanted to live, their only choice was to throw themselves on the mercy of the Prussians. As you might imagine, Amelia wasn't thrilled by this turn of events. She told the general, quote, You have betrayed the confidence reposed in you. You have betrayed the cause of freedom and of our country, as well as of honour. 
As for myself, I will not follow your steps into a foreign country to expose my shame to strangers. Some blood yet remains in my veins, and I have still left an arm to raise the sword against the enemy. I have a proud heart too, which will never submit to the ignominy of treason. Go to Prussia. Your representation of the situation doesn't frighten me. I prefer a thousand deaths to dishonour, and I fear not to encounter them while forcing my way through the Russian battalions in order to go offer my country this sword, which I have already raised in her defence, and, if necessary, the sacrifice of my life. She went back to her troops and marched away from the army, bringing the few others who were willing to fight on. The rest of them crossed the border into captivity. Now, I'd love to tell you that Amelia's story had a glorious ending, that she led her troops into battle and won a famous victory, or that she died a glorious death, falling with her face to the foe. That was certainly what she had been hoping for. But alas, no. About ten days after leaving the army, she fell ill and was forced to go to the nearby residence of a friend. The sources don't say what the illness was, but if it was enough for her to abandon her men it must have been pretty serious. While lying in bed, she heard news of the rebellion's final fling. In early September, a massive Russian army attacked Warsaw. And after three days of fighting, in which the Poles inflicted around 40% casualties, the Russians took the city. The remnants of the Polish army followed the Lithuanian army and marched to Prussia to avoid Russian retribution. The Romantics say that Amelia died on the 23rd of December of a broken heart, and maybe there's something to that. This rebellion had been the object of her life, and with its defeat went any real hope of Polish liberty in her lifetime. The illness she was battling needed all her strength to defeat, and so perhaps she simply gave up the fight. Her death was initially met with little fanfare. Poland and Lithuania were going through far more seismic issues to mark the death of one countess. Her grave was marked with a simple stone slab with only one word on it, Emilia. Now, as we come to look at Emilia's legacy, you may be thinking the same thing as me. Why is she a Polish heroine? She was Lithuanian, did most of her campaigning in Lithuania, Well, the issue is that there aren't many real heroes of the November Uprising for the Poles. The military and political leaders are pretty much all reviled for being incompetent, overly cautious, or both. The Uprising was a disaster for Poland, and led to the great emigration of liberals and left-wing intellectuals who became key players in other countries' revolutions, such as the revolutions of 1848 in Russia and Germany, and the Guerra Grande in Uruguay. It joined the ranks of doomed romantic uprisings, similar to the 1832 Paris uprising made famous by Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. And so a character like Amelia was perfect to become the figurehead of this tale. She came to represent Poland in the fight. Through her womanhood, she was the ultimate underdog. Through her virginity, she represented the purity of the Polish cause for liberty. Through her courage in battle, she represented the soldiers of the Polish army. Through her battles against the Polish high command, she separated herself from their failings. And through her tragic death, she symbolised the failure of the revolt. 
She had already become famous in her own time, as propagandists used her example to try and persuade the great powers of Europe to intervene against Russia, and these efforts resonated long after her death. The primary source for her life, Josef Strazowitz's biography of her, was published in 1843. This is a somewhat hagiographical account, imagining some conversations and presenting her very much as a weak and feeble woman with the heart and the stomach of a revolutionary. It is very 19th century, but is still, sadly, the most comprehensive account of her life that has been translated into English. As her position as the figurehead of the revolution grew, she became a favoured muse of artists and poets, most notably Adam Mickiewicz, widely considered to be Poland's greatest bard, who based his poem, Death of the Colonel, on her, based on conversations with the emigre community. He was ethnically Lithuanian, and his poem placed Plata among the pantheon of Polish military heroes, alongside the likes of the 17th century hero Stefan Zarnetsky and Thaddeus Kosciusko. Here it is in full. Before yon hut, with measured pace, the sentry marches to and fro. Crowds throng the door, and every face is pale with terror and woe. What hero, honoured and renowned, within upon his deathbed lies? Hark, a clear voice with trumpet sound, comes mingling with the mourner's cries. Saddle my steed once more for me, who shared with me so many a fight. What noble steed, oh let me see, before I close my eyes in the night. My sword and belt too let them lie, and all my trappings at my side. Gazing upon my arms will I die as the brave Zarnetsky died. And when the steed was led away, the priest brought in the holy bread. On bended knee the people pray, the soldiers' cheeks are pale with dread. Old scythe men, who, without a tear, poured blood in Kosciuszko's day. From their own veins and the enemies here weep as the parting prayers they say. The chapel bell at early dawn tolls for the parted soul they hear. And now the soldiers are all gone, for that the Russians are here. Peasants crowd around the warrior dead. He clasped his cross as when he died. Upon his saddle rests his head, his word and firearms by his side. But whence this virgin cheek, they said, and bosom femininely fair. Now save us, heaven, it is a maid. Emilia Plata slumbers here. The last bit of the poem, where Emilia is presented as an avenging angel, as a hero to rise from the dead at the nation's greatest hour of need, is quite a common one. Think of the Horn of Gondor in The Lord of the Rings, or Francis Drake's drum, which is said to beat whenever England is in danger. With the emphasis on her virginity, she is compared to the Virgin Mary, and it's that idea of purity that can really explain her appeal. She was a countess of unimpeachable noble blood. She was also a virgin, and this explains why she became so famous when so many other women of this uprising, including her friend Maria, did not. She was a figure that men were comfortable mythologising. This is not to take away from what she did, but to recognise that she wasn't unique in what she did. Poems and plays about Amelia were extremely popular throughout the 19th century, and were used to keep the spirit of Polish and Lithuanian nationalism alive while living under the Russian yoke. After they won their independence after World War I, these continued to proliferate, 
as they sought to embed their new nation. She became a kind of Buddhist-like figure, the head of a failed revolt that laid the foundations of an independent country. Interestingly, she was far more prevalent in Polish literary circles than she was in her home country, Lithuania. Indeed, her first biography there was not published until 1908, and it's only recently that she has become really well-known in her homeland. During World War II, when Poland was once again partitioned between Germany and the Soviet Union, a group of Polish female volunteers organised themselves into the Emilia Plata Independent Women's Battalion. Ironically, this unit fought alongside the Soviets from 1943 onwards, as they were, in theory at least, fighting to liberate the Poles from the Nazis. These women were keen to fight on the front line, but largely found themselves relegated to policing duties. This is one of the first examples I have found of common women using Amelia Plata to fight for their own causes. While some of the 19th and early 20th century plays were written by women, they largely follow the patriarchal formula set by Mikovits and Stravewitz. These women in the battalion are the true descendants of Amelia, courageous fighters willing to die for their country. Indeed, one can argue that the only time that Amelia has been used as a kind of feminist hero rather than a purely nationalistic one came not in Europe, but in the United States. One of America's founding feminists, Margaret Fuller, featured Amelia prominently in her 1845 work, Women of the 19th Century. And instead of emphasising her unwomanliness in fighting for her country, as almost all other accounts do, she presented her actions instead as reasons why women should have equality with men. Quote, But if you ask me what offices women may fill, I reply, any. I do not care what case you put. Let them be sea captains, if you will. I do not doubt there are women well fitted for such an office. And if so, I should be glad to see them in it, as to welcome the maid of Saragossa or Amelia Plata, I think women need, especially at this juncture, a far greater range of occupation than they have to rouse their latent powers. It is a sign of the times that it was her eulogising of Amelia Plata that caused the greatest discomfort to commentators, male and female at the time. Or in fact, perhaps it isn't. It's not like even today we are truly comfortable with women exhibiting traditional female virtues in the corridors of power. So, where can you see evidence of Amelia today? Well, paintings of her can be found in major Polish museums, and there are many streets and schools named after her. The Second Polish Republic had her face on their 20 zloty note, making her one of very few women to feature on Polish currency. And in her hometown, Lithuania, there are three great monuments to her. Her estate was destroyed by the Soviets, and it is now a park, and there you can find a statue of Amelia by the lake, kneeling in prayer, dressed in military uniform, sword by her side. In the cemetery in the local village, patriots replaced her simple gravestone with a more elaborate replacement, and elsewhere in the town stands a memorial to her. Atop a plinth, she is represented in statue, dressed in military uniform with her left hand on her heart and below her name is a quotation from Adam Mikovitz's poem. But whence this virgin cheek, they said, and bosom femininely fair. Now save us, heaven, it is a maid, Amelia Plata, 
slumbers here. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.